Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Grid. This is Jennifer Shahadi, and today I have a special episode for you guys. In a sea of stories about the so-called real Beth Harmon, or the in-real-life Queen's Gambit, my guest today, chess champion Diana Lanny, really shares a lot with the fictional Beth Harmon. And this is unlikely to be a pure coincidence. Diana, as we'll learn in this interview, frequented the very same New York gaming clubs that author Walter Tevis did as he was writing his chess novel in the early 80s. That novel, of course, would later be adapted into the number one hit Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit. Diana Lanny was the it girl of chess in the 80s. She loved chess with a fierce passion and used it as a lifeboat to combat what she told me in my first book, Chess Bitch, were drug and alcohol problems up the yin-yang. But it was hardly just drugs that Diana grappled with. As she'll reveal in this episode, she also encountered child abuse, rape, and suffered from related PTSD, depression, and suicidal attempts. This is a trigger warning for any of these topics, all of which are delved into in this episode. And if you are experiencing suicidal ideation, please get help. You can text 741-741. And now let's dig into Diana's heavy, but ultimately inspiring story. Diana, like the fictional Beth Harmon, saw chess as a glorious escape. In Chess Bitch, Diana told me, the logic of chess is an alternative system to the chaos of life. And this is why I thought this bonus episode was so perfect for the grid. And in both Diana and Beth's case, the miniature world of 64 squares helped make sense of life and was even a portal into joy and triumph. When I first met Diana 15 years ago, when interviewing her for Chess Bitch, I was immediately drawn to her beautiful voice and what seemed like miraculous optimism, considering everything she'd been through. Diana, thank you so much for joining me. Hi. Diana, tell us a little bit more about how you intersected with Walter Tevis in your New York days. I hung out in the same places he did every day. I was in Washington Square Park, and there was a little chess shop down there also. I always played at the top board in Washington Square Park and always had a huge crowd around me. I was the only woman that played daily everywhere. At night, I'd be at the game room, and he hung out there also. Of course, Pandolfini knew me, and Stuart Morden, who also consulted on the book, was a very good friend of mine and knew Since the game room had a bar in it, it was quite a lively place where you play chess or backgammon, but also drink and dance. So I think historically, I was sort of the it girl in chess because there were were other attractive women that played, but they had careers, they had husbands, they were going to university, and they played once a year or twice a year, whereas chess was my life. Chess had saved my life because I just didn't understand the world. I didn't know where I fit in. Some of the things that Beth Harmon said sounded like direct quotes from me. She said something towards the beginning about, you know, when she's depressed in the orphanage and she starts taking sedatives at night to sleep. She's very depressed. She doesn't understand life. And when she meets the janitor, all of a sudden she has this board, these 64 squares. And that's exactly what drew me to chess. I was suicidal and I knew I knew that I couldn't go on with life the way it was, just being a retail clerk for the rest of my life. 
life made no sense. And I was desperately depressed. And that's when I met Larry and he had opened this chess club and invited me into it. And I thought, I'll learn the world of chess. Those 64 squares can be my world and I'll learn the rules. I'll learn how this miniature microcosm of the world works. And that can be my life until I understand life better. You mentioned Larry and you're talking about Grandmaster Larry Kaufman. Yes, yes. You met Larry before you moved to New York City, right? I was going to art school because that was really my only talent. I was quite illiterate. My cumulative, what is it called? The thing, the test you take, GPA was under 1300. I was totally illiterate. I couldn't add anything above five, but I could draw quite well. And then Larry opened up a chess club in the same building as the art school. And I remember standing outside the art school one day, totally suicidal because art is has a lot of nepotism in it. It's not egalitarian at all. You need a gimmick. You've got to make people more attractive in their portraits or know somebody or know somebody with a gallery. And I knew I'd never succeed as an artist. And I was supporting myself dancing at night in a topless club. So Larry asked, he came down and asked me to draw a poster for the chess club. And I said, oh, I know how to play chess because I knew the rules. I remember standing in that parking lot by myself and saying, wow, this is what I can do. This is, this is what's going to rescue me from life. To me, it was, it was beauty. To me, chess had nothing to do with the fighting. It was about creating beauty. I was always looking for the most beautiful move. Yeah, chess is not only about winning, it can also be beautiful. Another direct quote from Beth Harmon in the um, Queen's Gambit. And in the intro, I mentioned your quote to me um, in Chess Bitch that the logic of chess is an alternative system to the chaos of life. And that um, certainly sounded a lot like when Beth said that the 64 squares were a space that she can control. And that drew her to chess more than the pieces themselves. There's so much I want to get into, but let's start at the beginning because the seeds were planted that, you know, chess would be a great thing to take up by your dad, who you otherwise did not have a good relationship with. But you did credit him for kind of tipping you off that chess might be a way of life. Yeah, he said if I was ever down on my luck and needed something to do that you all that you didn't have to become a very good chess player because back then women were considered great at 1800. You never officially appeared on a rating list as a national master. No, I didn't. Because the event that actually put you over the top didn't end up getting rated, which is just like the worst story ever for a chess player. It was horrible. (laughs) It was horrible. (laughs) My rating rose very quickly between uh, 79 and when I came to New York in 80. I was, I think my highest published was 2185. And they used to have them quarterly. They put out a rating supplement every quarter. So I also had a FIDE rating because I had played up in Canada. Canada once. So I was invited to futurities and these private events at the Marshall. I started being able to play really good players. And one of the futurities I played in that was run by he who shall not be named, 
I realized then Bill Goichberg calculated, and I think Steve Branwein calculated that I would make between 2210 and 2220 after the results of the tournament. So they said you should wait three months until the next rating supplement comes out. Because if you have a bad result, you'll never get your master title. So I waited the three months. The rating supplement came. I was so excited. I looked at it with Bill and there was nothing in there. My rating hadn't changed. And so I th- he said, well, it'll probably make the next supplement. And so I took six months off of chess and I was on the most active list. I played all the time. So during that time, I actually got a job too. And Heraldica ran a chess tournament opposite Bill Goichberg's World Open. And I was there with Alan Williams, who was my boyfriend. And I walked up to the tournament director and I said, what's going on? You know, I made master in that tournament and I've been waiting for six months. And he turned to me and he laughed. He said, I never sent that in. After all, I lost to a woman, you. And I said something back to him that was very cutting that I won't repeat right now. Oh, my God. I didn't. Larry did not tell me that part of the story. Jeez. How many times did you play in the U.S. championship and which one was like your most memorable? I only got to play. Oh, I played twice while I was a chess player. When I was a very young chess player in the sense of I was very weak. I got in because a couple of people didn't get in. I think I was only rated in the 1800s. And that was out at L.A. And there I roomed with Diane Savaride. And that was a fun tournament. But of course, I was the weakest player there by far and had a pretty weak result. But then at the next one, it was at Berkeley. And that was a such a fun tournament. That was so much fun. But I had already started working at that point and had to ask for the time off to play in it because my job was on the weekends. I had to work every weekend for the whole days because I was working in sports investing. We talked about your U.S. championships um, and which was your best result of all of them? Oh, probably the Berkeley one. I never had a good result in any of them. The one uh, that was at Erkes Park, the place where The Shining was filmed. That sounds like a great place for a chess tournament. <laughs> yeah, but I had uh, I had left chess like five years earlier and just happened to get on the invitation list. I was living in California after having to flee New York. I hadn't played chess in about five years at that point. And so, but I had a lot of fun. I mean, a chess tournament like that is always just one big party. Chess tournaments as parties, that is something that certainly the Queen's Gambit um, conveys a little bit. I think my partying was a little too hard because I didn't get invited back the next time, even though I qualified, I think. In what way were you partying too hard? <laughs> Can I say this? Yeah, sure. Okay, one game against one of my opponents, we decided to play the night before as a blitz game. And then whatever the result of the blitz game was, we just sort of faked whatever it was on a board Mm -hmm. (laughs) because she wanted to have fun with me. Everybody was just hanging around doing drugs and drinking. I was bored and I went down to the front desk and said, we want to go to town. Is there anybody's car I can borrow? And The front desk clerk gave me his car keys and I drove down to town. We were looking to score Coke. We 
came back up and I parked in a snowbank. I was on the front lawn of the Shining Hotel on this car in a snowbank. Thinking back on how irresponsible I was is pretty appalling. Yeah. We partied so hard that we didn't even show up for these closing ceremonies. Oh, boy. So, I, yeah, I, I can't understand why you didn't get invited back. <laughs> that, <that's>... <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's one thing that Beth and I have in common is that you, you see how much of a loner she is, and she's very sure shy and reticent. And the only thing that can let her cut loose is when she drinks. You know, the scene where she's dancing in front of Lenny. Mm -hmm. And I think Lenny sort of falls in love with her in that moment and then moves on to another job. That was me. I didn't drink during my games. uh, And she didn't either. She used barbiturates to be able to visualize. But thank goodness she realized she could visualize without them. And also, she was as impulsive as I was, you know, got up from the board as soon as she made her move, left the board and came back. And uh, she was enormously aggressive. And that's what I was known for. I mean, I never tried to play for a draw. I, I played to make the most astonishing, most beautiful moves possible. I love that. That's amazing. With the barbiturates, that was something that actually Walter Tevis, I think, was addicted to at some point in his life. So that was part of his biographical parts of it. But as far as the inspiration for the character goes, it just followed my life. So it was the perfect timing. It was when he was writing it. And he saw I was the only girl that was visible. And uh, I was unaware of the fact that I was quite attractive, as most young people are. And I've gotten so many letters in the last month from old friends saying, there's a movie, there's a show about you on Netflix. All the people that knew me in Michigan and in New York, I have gotten comments from everybody saying, that's you. You were the chess princess. I was in awe of you. Amazing. And tell us about your actual interactions with Walter Tevis. Did you ever get a chance to play him? I know he was a he was a he was a C player, I believe, right? Yeah, I I don't even know. I don't remember who he was. I know that he was at the same place as I was, but I was it wasn't that I was an elitist, but I went to Washington Square Park to play serious blitz. And so there were only five players allowed at each table. But there was always a crowd of about 15 or 20 people around our table watching me play and photographing me. You um, were in a lot of the same places as he was. Yeah, I was also the city champion of both the Marshall and the Manhattan Club simultaneously. And you were in your 20s at that time. And Walter Tevis was in his 50s. And unfortunately, he died before he turned 60. He was able to finish the Queen's Gambit before his untimely death. So you mentioned a lot of points in this series where you couldn't help but think of yourself. Yeah. Are there any others where you were like, yeah, that like just is exactly the way I would have reacted? Well, I know that I threw tantrums when I lost. I never analyzed my games with the players afterwards. I just stomped back to my hotel room and started crying and throwing things because it was the same old stuff again of me being stupid. And so it would take me about an hour after a loss to pull myself together enough to go downstairs and sit at the bar and socialize. 
The thing about madness, great madness and great talent being related, perhaps, I know that's kind of an old saying, and there's plenty of mad people that aren't great thinkers, but I have been confined to mental institutions on several occasions. The one in Bellevue was certainly, (laughs) it's funny, I had been in Bellevue for a month because I was suicidal. And when I found out I had missed the U.S. class championship, which is this great fun tournament that uh, we always took a women's team to. When I found out I had missed that, I said, I'm out of here. And I got out in time for Jack Collins was throwing a New Year's Eve party. And he said, you know, we've got to find this girl a place to live because it was mostly homelessness stress that was making me suicidal. I just could not support myself. So I needed time off. So Bill Goichberg stepped up and said she can live at the at the chess center, you know, with the old bar point. And I got a room at the bar point in trade for making sandwiches for the players. Yeah, I read something about that. Yeah, he was super generous. I didn't realize you also lived there. So there was basically just like a room with like a couch that you could sleep at. You would be appalled if you saw the room. There was a counter in the bar point where I could serve sandwiches and make them. Behind the counter was a bathroom. It actually had a bath on stilts with a hose going up to it uh-huh. in order to get water pressure. And there was a cot underneath this huge bathtub that was like seven feet up. And I slept on the cot underneath the bathtub. And that's all there was in the room. It was about four feet by 10 feet. That sounds terrifying. Weren't you afraid that the bathtub would like... I was. I was. <laughs> that's terrifying. I lived there for quite a while. So it's very convenient to being there. A lot of kids crashed there. There was a lot of the uh, Russians, the young Russians, uh, Kudrin and uh, Dlugi. There were all these different rooms, sort of catacombs in the back that had tons of old moldering pillows in them. And so players would stay and fall asleep there. And there's, of course, the poker game going all night long that needed sandwiches, too. This was a club, Bar Point, where people played chess, poker, backgammon. And Walter Tevis also frequented this club. Yes. That's incredible. And by the way, the day that you got out of Bellevue, and I didn't mention this in my book, but rereading it, I, I kind of it kind of took me aback. You, you remember so clearly it was New Year's Eve because you got invited to that party that Jack Collins hosted, right? And that connected you with um, staying at the Bar Point. And that was like my literal birthday, not just December 31st, but actually the year that I was born as well, 1980. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And my dad, actually, that day, he didn't go to the bar point. That would be amazing. Like, that would really be like a a great circle. But he did. He did at some point, I think, when it was clear that I was that I was um, born and everything was looking a okay. Um, He did famously go to Atlantic City. So (laughs) I mean, he's a great legend. Oh, he's a great dad. But, you know, he was like, hey, he was a great person. He was he was Mr. Philadelphia to me. I mean, he seemed to be very streetwise. You know, he wasn't highfalutin or anything. No, no, he was very down to earth. I mean, one of the things that my dad taught me, and I mean, my mom as well, is that, you know, you can communicate with anyone. And if you put people in like these hierarchies, like this person's better than me, this person's worse than me, that is limiting of your ambitions. You know, I 
think you you just have Absolutely. to see everyone as equal. And ironically, games kind of teach us that, which is surprising in a way because games are also hierarchical in themselves, but they're also hierarchical in a way where, you know, you don't have to be born into a certain, like, you know, family or have a certain amount of money. They're totally egalitarian. That's what really drew me to chess is nobody, if I became good, it was all on me. Nobody could claim credit for it. And I was responsible wholly for my results. I mean, sure, there is some, some people can't play chess because they don't have enough money to have the leisure to play chess. And that shows up a lot in the, that, that was sort of the first generation of kids that weren't rich were, be, were started to play. Kids that weren't being supported by their parents started to play because they get some sort of gigs. There were various gigs that chess players could get. Unfortunately, of course, most of them had to eventually become, enter the so-called real world and get a real job. I mean, now, of course, there's more money in chess than ever. And I mean, now that uh, the Queen's Gambit effect is in it's and honestly, like there's there's been a lot of money in chess for a while compared to maybe. Yeah, that millionaire's chess thing that Maurice. Yeah, that Maurice did must have really gotten things more interesting. There's also the, the sink fields in St. Louis. And in, even beyond that, there's all these nonprofit organizations all over the country where it's not like you can become a, a rock star getting paid millions of dollars if you're not Magnus Carlsen. But Anyone who's like a good teacher and who lives in a major city often has employment opportunities, you know, because chess is seen as an educational tool. So yeah, a lot of people have been able to successfully transition to that and, you know, kind of combine making some solid money with also like enjoying some kind of life on the tour. That's wonderful. Now the dynamic has changed even more as the online chess world is booming so much that people can give online lessons and streams. So the chess economy is certainly offering more opportunities than I think it ever has, especially to more people. But back to your story, there's still so many things I want to know. I was born on your the exact day that you got out of Bellevue. So I'd like <laughs> to think like my energy pushed you into like rehabilitation. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. The star is born. I was the generation before you. You pushed me into stardom. This was a good time for you. I mean, even though, of course, the conditions at the bar point, you really appreciated Goichberg's generosity, but you were a little bit afraid of that bathtub falling on your on your face. <laughs> <laughs> One criticism people have of the Queen's Gambit, which interests me, but doesn't resonate with me. And I'll, I'll tell you what it is. The Polgar sisters have mentioned this. I think the Botez sisters do, to, to, you know, really talk about that uh, different generations um, and different approaches to chess. And several other women have commented that Beth, didn't encounter the type of sexism and resistance that most girls or women would face, especially being so beautiful and um, being alone. And I, I, I actually felt like that was accurate, that criticism. But I also think that, you know, movies and TV don't have to be 100% realistic. No, and a man wrote this. A man wrote this. So he had never experienced that. He treated her like she was a man and got the respect that a man would get and the distance that a man would get. Whereas all women who have played know, you get like 10 guys hovering around your board, even if you're a 1300 player or a 600 player, and they're jingling their change in their pocket and people try to distract you. They try to cheat you. There's just, I had one guy throw up all over the board after he lost to me. 
And then just the just the danger of traveling alone. All these different situations where it seemed like the men that she encountered were all like good eggs. And certainly there are yeah. a lot a lot of good eggs in chess, but it's just like the unlikelihood that somebody would, you know, fail to encounter one bad egg throughout their entire career. Because there are a few bad eggs out there in the chess world. And for you, when you were living at the bar point, I mean, that seems like potentially a dangerous situation in that you were living in a place where it was like almost all men and, you know, people were up all night, you know, drinking. Well, fortunately, fortunately, nothing ever happened to me there. I think it was because it was so public. Mm -hmm. I had a dream one night that when I was living there that I was living in an auto showroom, you know, with glass all around it and that everybody could see into my room because I was on call all the time. But there were so many people there that nobody ever tried anything. It's interesting because Beth went to so many different places and lived in so many different places in the series. Well, actually, maybe she didn't live in that many. She lived in Kentucky and New York for a little while. She inherited a house. I mean, she was given a house. Housing was never an issue for her. Perhaps it had never been so for Walter, so he didn't have that particular fight for himself. But it was Stuart Morden who consulted on the book. I actually called up one time and I was suicidal uh, at the end of a drug run. And I thought I was dialing Stuart Margulies, who is my my private therapist. He's a chess publisher and excellent psychiatrist. And I was just bawling and saying, I'm going to throw myself out the window. And I was going on and on for about 40 minutes, crying and sobbing. And finally, he calmed me down. And he said, Diana, do you know who you're talking to? And I said, yeah, Stuart. And he said, Stuart who? And I said, Stuart Markley's. And he said, no, this is Stuart Morden. So he knew me quite well. Besides seeing me every night in the game room, he knew that I would get loose at night and dance. And how did you feel when you found out you were talking to the wrong Stuart? You know what? I cracked up laughing. It actually took it took all of the all of the heft out of my it it showed the absurdity of life. (laughs) Well, thank God you were able to fail in all of the suicide attempts and, and, and finally heal. Obviously, it's a difficult time as we're recording this mental health wise. And I, I'm particularly cur- concerned as the winter approaches. What advice do you have for people who are struggling with depressive urges? Oh, my gosh. You know, about three months into this, when it first started, I was so joyful that lockdown in place because I have trouble with a little bit of PTSD. I've been attacked so many times and I have some anxiety problems and probably ADHD, which I really kept me from being able to focus well in chess. That's why I always wore a visor and earplugs. In these times, I, you know, if the people are open to antidepressants, I had to go back on an antidepressant because it was just too much. And so I started back on one of the great antidepressants. I went into the thing thinking, oh, great, five months in lockdown, I can get in shape. I can finally catch up on everything that I need to do for myself, because usually I put other people's needs first, especially now being a caretaker of my mother. So I was exercising and eating perfectly. I lost 40 pounds. I was I started playing chess again every day. And uh, I played, I think, from April for about a month. 
and got my rating up to something respectable. And I'm considering doing it again. That's amazing. On chess.com or something? Is that what you mean? Yeah, on chess.com, I went from something like 1500 to 18 something and to 21 something and my problem solving. And in one month, it was really encouraging that my brain hasn't collapsed. That's great that you're able to kind of like get yourself back into that muscle memory. Have you ever considered the the psychedelic therapy? I was just listening to a podcast about that. I just mentioned that the other day to Larry, as a matter of fact. I was looking into, um, what's it called, MDA or? MDMA. Yeah, I'm definitely interested in giving that a try because I've always been a loner. I've never been able to tolerate close relationships with most people. I mean, I've had like one great friend or my mother or some, I'm very particular. I don't trust people easily. Earlier, you said that you had PTSD because you had been attacked so many times. Yes. Yeah. In what context? In California or in New York? As a child, I was molested from the time of being a toddler and it was constant. I could not have an interaction with my father. He groomed me and my brother. He was a sicko. How did you and your brother get away from him? Well, my brother joined forces with him. My father groomed him to help him get me. That's horrifying. Yeah, yeah. They do things like invite me out for a walk in the evening and say it was to go smoke a cigarette because mom wouldn't allow us to smoke. And they'd start talking about sex. And what I'd done, they want, they were constantly like badgering me about sex and what I liked or what different words meant. And my father, I had to move down to the basement in my house when I was in sixth grade because my father would get so blasted every night that he lost all inhibition and would come into my room and take his clothes off. Yeah. And there's constant sexual I, I couldn't, after I left home at 18, I couldn't call him up for advice about life. Like when I was really sad and scared down in Miami, I called him once from a phone booth to say, what should I do? Instead of answering me, he said, you know, last night I was fantasizing about you. You were with another woman and he started going on like that. And I just, it just tore me apart. And I, I stopped communicating with him entirely. I mean, that's just so, so sorry to hear that. I mean, that's just unbelievably awful. And then he's uh, deceased. Yes, thank goodness. And I've forgiven him also. It's It's been long enough that I've forgiven him. I know he had an incredibly tough childhood and was a bit of an orphan himself. He was a very brilliant man, but mostly he talked to me to use me sexually. And I was under the impression that he liked me more than mom. And so I couldn't go to mom because I knew it would hurt her feelings if she knew that he liked, that he preferred me to her. And did your mom, what do you, you, did you think your mom knew about this stuff or? She knew about a little bit. She told me I went to a class for sexual abuse survivors when I was living out in Vegas. And they said that you should talk to your family and get it out in the open. And so I tried talking to my mom and she said, I told him to stay away from you. I tried to keep him away from you. And I never want to hear about this again. That's very sad. And it's amazing that you were able to, um, you know, break the chain. Did you keep in touch with your brother? Was No, he had left home the year before. We both knew that we had to leave home immediately 
because mommy had to get away from daddy. Daddy was the big bad monster and he was violent and would suddenly fly into a screaming mood. We knew that we were the cause of my mother's unhappiness and that we had to get away from home as soon as possible. So my brother had moved away and joined the army or the Navy or something. This was where, what city was that in? D.C., That was in Washington, D.C. Yeah, before I, I didn't start chess until almost two years after I left home. Because it was D.C. and then you were in Miami for a little bit as well, right? Yeah, I dragged Larry down to Miami. He was such a mouse. And I had a wonderful boyfriend named Sean, and we had a kitty cat, and we had plenty of income. But things, my sex life was weird. I couldn't, I couldn't enjoy it. I had leftover problems from my father. Everybody smelled like my father, and I couldn't understand it. And I just made the decision that I was, as, that I was from Mars, that I was clearly not human, that there was something wrong with me. And pretty funny for a topless dancer to say, but I think to a certain degree, I was trying to prove my father right when he told me that when I grew up, that my occupation should be as a prostitute. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was super creepy. And he'd say, you have such beautiful long legs. And I wrote up a report in sixth grade. They asked us to say what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I said that I was going to be a Playboy bunny. And because my father had told me to do that. and. The whole room was just shocked. But nobody did anything back then. Nobody, there's no help back then. So I was kind of on my own spinning, trying to figure out life and why I couldn't make love to the man that I loved, which was my my boyfriend, Sean. And that's why I needed to get away from D.C. so badly. Because here I was a grown-up and I had spent 18 years being quiet and trying to keep the peace in my family. And I knew that as soon as I grew up, I'd get away from all that and everything would be perfect. But it wasn't. (laughs) It was life didn't get suddenly better. And then I found chess. As you told me in chess pitch, it was like D.C., Miami. In D.C., I was about a 600 player when I started Uh playing at the club. Then I dragged Larry down to Miami because I needed an excuse to get out of town. And helped him start the business, did a lot of paperwork for him, you know, organizing the charts and got a job down there and got mixed up with some criminals. And I was raped down there also. And I was raped a couple of times later on. And I was molested on at least a weekly basis walking around New York. Oh, my God. I think it just underscores the truth that like a lot of people were saying that if you don't have other women around or better men who understand what the roles are, the chances of something bad happening are just so high. And it's just so horrific to hear. Yeah. Chess was my new family. I really thought of chess as my family. And because I could go to any state and just open up a chess life and stay with somebody and they wouldn't hurt me. So you actually found, similar to Beth in the series, that the people that you met through chess were, you know, almost all good people that were supportive and kind and helpful. Absolutely. That really is remarkable and and kind of comforting to hear also that you were able to use chess as a way not only to, you know, find your own intelligence, but also to find a network of people that you could finally trust. It was wonderful. 
I remember being invited to a party in New York, just a regular everybody type people in my building. And, you know, how people introduce themselves and they say, what do you do? And after they tell me what they did, they'd say, what do you do? And I said, I'm a chess player. <laughs> they'd sort of look at me blankly. And I said, yeah, chess is my life. I'm not interested in anything else. <laughs> and did they tend to be impressed? No, they tended to be like, what's wrong with her? That's funny. I was terrible at socializing unless I had a couple of drinks in me. But it sounds like you were very popular also. So, you, But I guess you I were drinking a lot. So you were able to oh, open I up. had a rule. I never drank before sundown. So depending on whether it was the summer or the winter, you, you had a lot more. You had a lot more time. <laughs> but I also had to work from five till seven, a few days during the week. You know, those were the operating hours. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't drink before that either because I like to stay sharp on the phone. Where was this? Uh, working in New York in the after hours investment department. Uh, okay. The sports investing. This was after you were done with Barpoint and you had moved on to sports investing. Right. Got it. Okay. Yeah. How long were you working at the Barpoint as the sandwich, you know, deliverer? I guess I was there for about between one and two years because that's when I was playing in all the futurities and the invitational that I played at the Marshall, I think was before then I had met Alan Williams at the bar point and we hooked up and moved to Hoboken because the rents in New York were just ridiculous, but that was my first true home. And I got to play a lot more chess because I got laid off one summer because it was baseball season and there was just no, there was no business. So they shut down for uh, the summer. Aha. Uh -huh. And then you started playing chess a little bit more. And this was around when you also represented the United States at the Olympiad in um, Lucerne. Yeah, that's that's right. And I represented us in the Olympiad in Lucerne. I got to go to Netanya and play in their Olympiad. That must have been an incredible experience, too. Oh, it was. It was so much fun. It was me and one of the top male players went to represent America. And Netanya is such a beautiful little town. It was great. The owners of the hotel were Thai. And the guy that came with me had been in the Peace Corps and spoke Thai. And they sang songs together. And so the hotel owners ran a restaurant. And every night after our round, we'd come back and they would have a feast of authentic Thai food that we could eat. It was just delightful. That sounds so delicious. We were assigned a guard who had a Jeep and a machine gun on the back or some sort of great big gun. And he drove us all over like Tel Aviv and to Kibbutzim and we got the grand tour. When you were in Lucerne, I noticed I was looking at the database of that, that event and you played against Nona Gavrinashvili and actually got a draw against her with the black pieces. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about playing like that legend of chess? It started the night before because we were in the uh, discotheque that they had there dancing and drinking uh, with is Nick DeFermian and the whole team. Nick DeFermian was our team captain and uh, we were discussing whether Russia had offered us a half point to not play the thing at all. They'd say they would give us, it was either one and a half or a half. And I think it was a half a point or one point. And I said, no, let's play. That's, I mean, that's terrible. 
So we actually scored well as a team against them. We did better than whatever they had offered us. She was a hero. In Russia, they respected chess as much as any other endeavor and started teaching people as children for free at the Pioneer School. And she was from Soviet Georgia, which was the home of all of the best women players. I think all of the great players came from there. And she was so famous because she was the world champion for so long that they made a perfume about her. And it was, had her name, it was called something like Nona. It was overwhelming playing a superstar like her. Yeah, and you did well in that tournament. I, I believe you did quite well. So that must have been a real highlight. I mean, Olympiad, it's really something else. And then also to play well for your team on your first outing must have been quite remarkable. It was wonderful. And I played second board. And then at some point you stopped playing chess seriously and you ended up moving to California. And Yeah, you- I there was some legal difficulties in New York that forced me to make a quick move in order to stay out of jail. So I packed up and the game room had closed. The Upper West Side got super expensive and the game room closed. And so all my friends left, you know, Trinu and Howard Lederer left. And Steve Branwine, who was my best friend, and Earl Hall and Jeremy and Mark Ginsburg and Fedorowitz, everybody just left because that was our living room. That's where we spent all of our time and there was nothing left. And then getting busted, you know, having the police break down my door and uh, rape my apartment gave me the impetus to say it's time to leave. (laughs) <laughs> and you were you were rated for sports betting, right? Yeah. So you you were rated for sports betting in New York, and then you went to California and got in, involved in the same business there. A few years later, yes, I, I got a recommendation from somebody. Actually, Paul McGrill recommended me as an excellent person, you know, because I was, I was very good on the phone. I just never made mistakes. And so I was invited to join a group in Santa Cruz. And that time that we got busted, unfortunately, I actually had to do time. Yeah, you told me a little bit about that in chess, but a four-month sentence, huh? It was actually an eight-month sentence, but I was allowed to do four in and then four on a bracelet. And what was your experience, like your expectations versus your reality in jail? I was terrified of going. I had these visions like they have in movies of living in some dungeon in a basement that never saw any light. But it was actually much more horrible, but in different ways. (laughs) But I enjoyed it. To me, I just pretended that I was on Venus, that I was visiting a different planet. I always try to make the best out of whatever I have. I try to find an upside to everything. And there I was. I knew I was stuck for four months. So I didn't cry about it. Once I was there and I saw the layout, because I was white, I got preferential treatment. It was incredibly racist there. It was mostly Hispanic women there and then a small black population and a small American white population. I started a chess club for women there. Yeah, that's amazing. You started a chess club for women. And in general, it seems like female empowerment for chess has been something that you've been interested in because you've also coached a lot of girls since getting out of the sports business. Absolutely. Yes. I think that teaching women and young girls any one of the mind sports that's considered man's domain is very empowering. It was definitely empowering for me. And 
chess has a cachet of requiring great genius, which to me, I mean, I think it's just like learning a language. It's a very language type game. Like when you first start to learn Spanish or Japanese, you aren't putting your words together quite right, but you learn the nuances as you go along and you find just the right word for the position. And that's like finding the right move in chess. I totally agree. It's a very linguistically, and women are great at that. Yeah. And it just sounds like you had such a positive experience with like encountering so much sexism and abuse outside the world of chess. And then obviously you had some negative encounters in chess, like when, you know, the person didn't rate the tournament because you were a woman. But overall, it sounded like it was resoundingly positive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had total respect from from my pals and from the world in general. I mean, I was considered a celebrity. I was, as Larry says, the princess. Your story is just so remarkable. I feel like it can go in so many directions. Have you ever considered like writing a book or something like that? Several people have approached me wanting to write my book. And I really should do it. But, you know, things just keep on coming up, like taking care of mom or there's just I always have such a long to do list of things. Yeah, it would be great. And I even I wrote to Bruce and asked him, Bruce Pandolfini, and asked him whether he thought that I might have been the inspiration. And he said that I could have been that Walter always took his characters from real life but that he couldn't remember exactly, you know, that he couldn't say absolutely you were the inspiration, but certainly Walter did use real people as his characters. In a way, it it seems like it was a bit of a fantasy because it sounds like it was like kind of a compositive, potentially you and the author himself. Exactly. And then also a world champion, but it's like all of those things that you encountered, even though you were able to surmount many of them, the idea of like surmounting all of them and and crushing everyone and being world champion, you know, without the money or the house that was inherited... It was like a a bit of a realism combined with fantasy in a way. What what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I think that Walter probably had never experienced much homelessness challenges. And so he wrote it from his point of view, which was that he didn't have that stressor in his life. He didn't have sexual molestation as a stressor in his life. He had being an orphan as his big deal, the thing that really hampered him emotionally. I'm not sure on the details of his orphanage, but it's quite possible he learned from the janitor in the basement, just like just like Beth did. You know, it's not like every story has to be 100% realistic, too. I think some people, like, because it's mostly realistic, they get upset if it's not 100% realistic. But I don't see things that way. Right. I think it's terrific. I mean, I'm just so glad for chess that such a thing happened and that it's caught on so big. And I'd love to see a second season. What is your absolute favorite part about the series? I really liked it that she was glamorous. I was really into looking good, too. I'd spend, you know, I'd curl my hair every day and put on makeup, and I was not confident in my looks. The scene where she gets drunk and starts dancing, just I just thought, wow, that's me. <laughs> because I would do that, too. And her horrible swings in depression when she'd lose or when something would go wrong in chess, you know, where she'd start shoveling pills and booze is something I've experienced all my life. 
and had to fight against. You know, it's interesting that in the book, Beth, especially when she's young, is not beautiful. Like she actually, Walter describes her as homely. But then as she gets older, she blossoms. And particularly when she plays chess, she glows with like this uh, kind of cerebral beauty. Yeah. They obviously nailed in the series, although clearly, like you, the actress was very... uh, (laughs) Very attractive. So they had had to make her even more attractive when she was playing chess. It's funny. At that, at the point that I played in Berkeley, I had short red hair also. Now that the series is out, I feel like there's going to be even more redheads than in her chess. It really fits. And in the book, she wasn't a redhead. And Anya, actually in an interview with uh, Chess Life, John Hartman says that she was the one to come up with the idea of making Beth a redhead. Because she thought it would like allow her to kind of stand out from this like sea of brown haired people. That it would just like make her stand out wherever she was. The Red Queen. Yeah, absolutely. Diana, you do offer chess lessons now, right? So if people want to get in touch with you or anything about that, where's the best way to do it? I'm not on TikTok yet. And on chess.com. My handle on chess.com is Lana. Caprini. It's a joke in Latin. It's sort of like you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear because Lana is wool and Caprini is a ram. I took the name Lana, L-A-N-A, Caprini, C-A-P-R-I-N-I. And I thought, what a beautiful name. (laughs) It's even got my Italian heritage sound to it. So that's my handle there. And they can leave messages there for me at chess.com. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing, keeping women in chess and publicizing it. You, you do a fantastic job, Jenny. Diana Lanny, an incredible woman who's overcome so much. An amazing chess player who used chess to find her way out of a very difficult beginning opening stage. And we were grateful to hear her story. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. Cheap tricks up my sleeve Yeah, I got talent